Hi, I'm Kim Bussey-Chamberlain, a paramedic, mum and author. As paramedics, we're often asked, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? And I'm here to encourage a different kind of conversation, to uncover what it takes to work in these frontline roles and the privilege we experience in meeting and connecting with patients. This podcast is all about what it's really like to be a paramedic or any frontline uniform professional. Each week, you get to hear from the real humans under the uniform, the memorable moments they've experienced in their jobs, and the people that have stayed with them for life. Let's hear what life is really like beneath the blue lights. Welcome to Beneath the Blue Lights, the paramedic podcast. I'm Kim, your host for this series. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Nevin, a consultant in anaesthesia and pre-hospital care at the Royal London Hospital. Dan has also been a HEMS doctor, which is our air ambulance service, and he's been working with some of the sickest patients pre-hospitally in that role. As a paramedic, there's never anything more reassuring than when you arrive at the scene of a major trauma and you know that HEMS is en route. When they arrive and it's an anaesthetist on board, that feeling only multiplies massively, for me at least. I did actually ask some of Dan's colleagues if they could give me some stories to share in this intro uh, about working with him. And they said they definitely couldn't tell me anything that I'd be able to repeat. So there we are. (laughs) Hi, Dan. How are you doing? Hey, Kim. Thanks very much for that intro. And it's lovely to meet you, uh, albeit virtually. Much appreciated. (laughs) Thank you so much. So my first question is... Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you decided to become a doctor and what your job now involves? I decided I wanted to be a doctor when I was a kid. I was a proper nerdy little geek. I used to read heaps and heaps of books, fell in love with reading as a young boy and uh, remembered having you know regular arguments with the library about how many books I was allowed to take out because I was always going through them too fast. I read a book about doctors and when I was about 12 years old, and it was about a class of medical students going through their training at uh, Harvard Medical School. It's just a really well-written book um, and just sounded fascinating, just the stuff they got up to. And it was a fictional book and, um, and had some great little sort of bylines and sub-stories and subplots within it, but it just um, really gripped me. And I finished reading that book and I just sort of uh, realized, I was like, oh, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I've decided I'm going to do when I grow up. And uh, it never really left me all the way through the rest of high school. That It was just that. I was, you know, various career bits and bobs along the way. People were like, what are you going to do? And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to go and be a doctor. <laughs> that's amazing to have thought that from such a young age and then actually see it through. I feel like how many people have done that with their childhood ambitions? So can you tell us a bit about what your job is now? Obviously, we covered a little bit that you split your time between being in a hospital and up in the air. But if you could expand on that a little bit, that'd be great. Of course. When I finished training, I spent a lot of time in South Africa doing junior doctor jobs, um, working in the trauma unit in in what used to be called Johannesburg General Hospital and sort of fell in love with trauma at an early age. I often tell the People who want to go and, and train or work in South Africa, that's, that trauma is the most fun you can have with your clothes on. <laughs> uh, so it's a, it's a very exciting, very dynamic, very, very challenging sort of uh, working environment. And certainly clinically, it can be quite exciting, quite dynamic. It's obviously not for everybody, but I just fell in love with it from an, from an early age. And I sort of thought initially I wanted to pursue a career in surgery or perhaps emergency medicine. And I often tell people I'm an emergency physician trapped in an anaesthetist's body 
you know, in terms of what my mindset is and how I sort of approach my work. But what I realized from working in the trauma unit and spending a couple of years working in emergency medicine that I, I really loved the sort of the pace and the intensity and the excitement of working in the resuscitation bay. And uh, I found that a lot of emergency medicine didn't hold my attention. But whenever I was working, focusing on one patient in a very intense environment, sort of high stakes decisions, clinically, you know, clinically procedural and very exciting and challenging and, and technically challenging, that was the bit of um, the bit of medicine that I sort of really gripped me. So whether it was medical resuscitation or traumatic resuscitation, I, I really got into that. So I then tried to figure out which is the bit of medicine that deals with the sickest people in the hospital so I can spend all of my time, you know, working with that cohort of patients. Uh, and then mm-hmm. I decided I needed to work in the intensive care unit. So there's a couple of paths to intensive care medicine, uh, but a very common one is through a base specialty of anesthesia. So I did anesthesia to do critical care. Mm-hmm. And all, all the way along, I was sort of uh, keeping up my sort of interest in trauma, and I was working in pre-hospital care in South Africa, and I was working on an air ambulance, and I trained up in, in anesthesia. You know, my family is actually originally from Ireland. I've got a lot of aunts and uncles, and my mom and dad are actually from Dublin. So I sort of thought, well, I'll come over to the UK, and I'll, uh, I know there's air ambulance jobs in the UK, and I'll explore that, and I'll, it'll put me in the center of the world, and it's easy to travel, and so I came, came over to the UK and I just sort of never really left. Every time I kind of geared myself up to leave, I just sort of found myself uh, still here. So what I do these days is <laughs> I work as a consultant anaesthetist. Ironically, I, I don't work formally in critical care uh, here in the UK, but I work as, as what's called a consultant anaesthetist, which means I work inside of the hospital. And my main role is to give people anesthesia for surgery all varieties of different types of surgery. So I'm the person that evaluates them before their operation, takes decisions about their risks for surgery, has conversations with them about this, then puts them to sleep and looks after them while they're having surgery, uh, and then wakes them up afterwards and sees them on to the next phase of their care. A lot of people don't really know what anaesthetists do, and they're sort of like gray men hiding in the background. But actually... (laughs) Up to sort of 60 to 70% of people admitted in a hospital will encounter an anaesthetist because they're specialists in so many different domains, uh, particularly in areas of pain, resuscitation, critical care, the operating theatres, sedation, etc. So um, it's quite a dynamic and very diverse job in the hospital. And then at the same time, I work as a consultant and, and part of the time, part of my time is spent working as a consultant on the air ambulance. And that's uh, doing exactly as you'd expect and exactly as you alluded to, going out to jobs, primarily trauma jobs, where we arrive to support the people on the ground, the ambulance service, and to evaluate and resuscitate and transfer those patients back to the hospital. So again, a very dynamic environment. We're either going out in a response car or a helicopter to all sorts of scenes and incidents, uh, and and then looking after people there at the roadside, delivering anesthesia and other major interventions at the roadside before we uh, wrap them up and uh, and pack them up and bring them into the hospital for the next the next step of their care. <laughs> you make it sound so simple. <laughs> what he's really saying is like <laughs> they literally set up if necessary an operating department on the pavement and (laughs) and do some pretty awesome interventions (laughs) Um, yeah yeah that's true I mean I I suppose I 
I do downplay it a little bit. I mean, that you're quite right. The kit we carry in the air ambulance, whether it's in the boot of the car or the back of the helicopter, is pretty much a mobile emergency department come critical care unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can and do do operations on the side of the road from time to time. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, the skills it brings to these situations is one, so impressive, but also just phenomenal for um, that set of patients, that group of patients who, for the most part, would not have a chance at survival if it were not for the existence of you guys in the air ambulance, actually. They would never make it to hospital. So to have these patients getting that chance and, you know, occasionally when you do get the opportunity to see it through to hospital and see them afterwards when they're up and about it again, it's, it's quite amazing and, and inspiring. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, what else do you say to that? When you put it like that, it sounds amazing. I mean, you know, it's quite easy to get just tied up in the mundanity of, you know, the equipment checks and cleaning stuff uh, mm-hmm. and sorting out the day-to-day and routine. And I think it's important to hear because I think people think we just do operations all day, every day. I mean, you know, there's there are days where um, where it's, it's just making sure that everything's good to go and crash out and it's 100% when we need it. But there are definitely days where you get to be part of a part of a team of people who who work, you know, tirelessly and furiously on somebody uh, who's really critically unwell or, or dying, or or has even you know had a cardiac arrest right in front of you, and then you've got all of the bits and pieces and and it's the sets of hands to 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 just rip it back from the clutches. Yeah, uh, and yeah, and it's that is that is quite a privilege. Yeah, I mean the training as well that you guys do. <laughs> for it is quite intense i uh was on one of the i don't know i can't remember what they call it now is the helicopter crew course i think it uh, used to yeah be that's right yeah the phcc uh, the pre-hospital crew course mm. oh i've had the privilege to work with some awesome paramedics uh, over my career and um yeah we have a very flat hierarchy in hems the paramedics are are absolutely equal <laughs> and in some cases sometimes more than equal we've certainly had the the doctor evaluate the patient and change the paramedic and say i think we're going to do this and this and this and the paramedics gone nope nope no we're not going to do that <laughs> we're going to do this and this and this <laughs> and the doctor's like uh oh yeah uh, okay yeah good idea <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, we spend an enormous amount of time debriefing. Every job gets debriefed twice a week. We hold formal debrief sessions on the helipad where we review cases. Monthly, we do clinical governance days where we review cases. We are in a constant, constant cycle of review and debrief, uh, and there's no stone gets gets left unturned. And you know, sometimes the feedback and the debrief can be pretty blunt. Uh, we're all, you know, we're all mates. But um, uh, also, it's done in front of other people, though, in the clinical government yeah, days. Yeah, I've been there for it. some of those. <laughs> yeah, and I think probably it used to be a little bit more blunt than it is now, slightly gentler. But I mean, the message is pretty core, and it's like if we, if it hasn't gone according to plan, like we tidy it up and we we figure out mm-hmm. what went wrong and why, and then we wrap it up and make sure that well, try to make sure that we don't do it again that way, and we do we do it better yeah. next time. So there is a there is a constant constant sort of review of everything that's going on i mean the volumes of calls that come through the emergency operations center in london is just astonishing and we're literally looking for the the very small percentage of critically injured trauma patients in every 24-hour period and we only want to go to that very small group of people and it is a much smaller group of people than than what you guys and and others have to deal with Actually, and that's also another skill in itself is one of the roles that the paramedics do on HEMS is sit in the control room. 
And I've watched them sitting there, the Hems paramedic in the control room. And like you said, there are, I mean, thousands and thousands of calls. I think at the moment, regularly, there's something like seven and a half thousand calls coming through. Oh, God, yeah. And they are scanning Mad. through, looking at their screens, checking out the calls coming through, yeah. what the description is. And somehow they just managed to go, oh, that one, that one, get someone yeah. from Hems onto yeah. that, let's interrogate <laughs> it or listen in or, and then, right, yep, dispatch them off to that one. It's incredible to watch that side of it even, <laughs> like, you know, sifting, yeah. sifting through. It's like, it's like sieving for gold. <laughs> That's that's literally that is exactly it. As you say, there's whatever it is between five and seven and a half thousand calls a day, and they're literally looking for those ten jobs in that twenty four hour period that that the team needs to attend, and uh, mm. and they're so good at it. And I think there's there's a bit of science to it, but I think there's just a lot of built up established skill over years and. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, there's paramedics and we, you know, they lecture on this on the pre-hospital crew course and stuff, but literally like they'll phone a, phone a person back who's, who's called for an ambulance and they'll just hear a baby cry in the background that's different or they'll just hear the way someone's breathing through the phone and they're like, that one. That one. <laughs> and that is yeah. the one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 amazing. <laughs> There's just a lot of moving parts, and it's it creates like a beautiful thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's mad. So, as paramedics, our universal kind of pet peeve question is: What's the worst job you've ever seen? Drives everyone a bit mad. And so far on the show, we've had a lot of different answers as to how people deal with that question. Some of them are brutal and blunt, and some of them are are more humorous. But I'm guessing that in your role, you also get asked that a lot. How have you been asked it and how do you handle it? Yeah, no, I've definitely been asked it. I've definitely been asked it. I don't know, you know. I mean, um I like to I like to I'm a <laughs> I like to pull pull people's legs a bit and uh I like to be a bit of a tease and I've got a good sense of humor. So I usually just throw something back that's a little bit humorous and a little bit low key. Yeah. But it's a really tricky question, you know, because you know, people don't People don't really understand what they're asking when they ask that question, you know, and not so much Absolutely. for me about, you know, reliving some horrendous job, but also there was like some human being at the end of uh, whatever they really want to know. And I totally understand why they go for it. You know, there's this macabre fascination, you know, because most people will never see any of the things that we'll see. So this is a sort of macabre fascination did you actually see someone with their leg ripped off, you know? Like, I think that's what they're really going for. But truthfully, you know, some of the things that we see and encounter and certainly some of the things I've seen in South Africa would absolutely make their hair turn white if I had to tell them. So <laughs> so I'd, I don't have a really good way of dealing with it, but I was sort of thinking um, that it would be so much nicer if they would, if they would, uh, rather, because you know, you get a lot of sort of tropes that come up when people say, "What do you do?" and you say, "No, I'm a doctor." And you know, it's first of all, it's always like, "Oh God, you must be so smart." And you're like, "Well, no, not really." <laughs> In fact, some days I really question my intelligence. <laughs> the fact that I've ended up all the way here, um, but and you know, and then there's the like, "Oh my God, okay, so what's the what's the worst thing you've seen?" But it'd be so much better if they were just like, "Oh wow, that sounds really exciting." Like, what does a day in your life look like? You know. Because that would actually mm. kind of give you a bit of scope to to pick and choose what you tell them. And then you can be like, oh, well, you know, the helicopter comes in and we do a bunch of checks and then we, we're all suited up and we do a brief. And 
and you can make it as exciting or, or as dull as you like. And then if you feel they can handle it, you can be like, yeah. And then we went out to a guy and he was hit by a car and his leg was broken and it was folded back on himself and it was really awful. And then like, oh, yeah, yeah, nasty. And that's, <laughs> I just want a little taste, I suspect. But, it, yeah, you know, you, you're never really going to tell them there were some of the worst things you've seen because most people, A, probably wouldn't believe it and B, would just be like quite horrified, you know. So, I sort of understand where yeah. they're coming from, but I don't. I don't have a good stock answer. I've got to be honest. But but if we're if yeah. this is if this podcast is going out into the ether and people are hearing it, then uh, I guess the message I'd want to get out there is like just rather be like, "Hey, wow, that sounds like a super interesting job. What does a day in your life look like?" You know. So when I meet you know people yeah. that I massively admire and respect, you know, soldiers and policemen mm-hmm. and firemen. I mean, you know, I'm just like, oh wow, like. Tell me about like what your day is like. What do you do in a given day? And then they can tell me, oh, it's really boring. Yeah. Like we go around and like, I don't know, put up parking tickets. I'm like, oh, what? You're not like, you know, <laughs> catching baddies all day? And There's no yeah, bad exactly. guys? <laughs> I'm sure there is, but uh, you know what I mean? So at least it just, it, gives, it just gives them scope to be like as exciting or as unexciting as, as, as they want to yeah. be. And that's the thing. I think everyone who's in these sorts of roles loves the job. You wouldn't do yeah, it otherwise. Sure. And so we like talking about it as well because it's a job that you enjoy, you're passionate yeah. about it, um, and also you're proud of it, I think, as well. So you do want to talk about it, but it's being given that option to also take into consideration what you might want to talk about yeah. as part of it. Yeah, I guess so. And um, and I sort of bat that question away really with just some sort of, you know, some humorous comment or something like that. But yeah, it would be nice to rather have something like, hey, wow, that's okay. So what does that look like? Because like I'm, you know, I'm an accountant yeah. and I just sit in a cubicle all day, like doing Excel or something. <laughs> when I like, no disrespect, I have no idea what accountants do, to be honest. <laughs> I just know it involves a lot of numbers. I don't either. To but, <laughs> but you know what I mean? So it's just my, you know. But I think they boss Excel spreadsheets, so I think that's exactly accurate. Exactly right. So <laughs> there's there's no really good answer except, I guess, just kind of bat it away with something. I usually just try to bat it away with something humorous. Like, it just frames the conversation better and lets you have a little more say over how, how you're going to deliver it and what you're going to talk yeah, about. Yeah, I think so. Are there any patients or jobs or situations that have stayed with you especially whether they're humorous or heartwarming. I mean, there's so many. I've got a nice story from South Africa. This this one kind of sticks with me because I think, um, and I'm not sure why, I don't think it's through like any uh, any maleficence um, or, or ill intent, but you very rarely have any patients coming back to say thank you or give you some feedback. I think probably in part it's when I was working for the Air Ambulance in South Africa, we weren't as good as follow, uh, as we are here. Uh, following up the patients long term i do remember going to a car accident really nasty car accident a car had come off the road at high speed and been really mangled and rolled over a couple of times and was crushed to bits and there was a young girl she was probably only about 14 or 15 at the time in the front passenger seat she was trapped in the car and the fire crews took the roof off and that and i remember she was unconscious and she had an, an obstructed airway and I stood on the back seat of the car and I, and I leant over the top of her and I basically intubated her sitting up in the car. Long story short, we eventually extricated her. She had a really nasty head injury 
and you know sort of did the job took her off to hospital she went off to the neurosurgeons and on to the intensive care unit and I sort of just moved on and forgot about it but about 18 months later her mother brought her to come and see me and take me out for a coffee and just say thanks and at that time she was back at school wow. and doing really well and she had been through intensive care and come out the other side and through rehab and she'd gone back to school and she did have a permanent injury to her brain but she was back in school and had laid out sort of future potential career plan options for her and that was just really nice because I've done just thousands of those jobs and you often don't know what ultimately happens to the patients. You lose track of them. There's too many of them. And as I say, our follow-up systems weren't great back then. This is over 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And it was really nice just to have someone come back and take me out for a coffee and just be like, oh, yeah, thank you. Like, really, thank you. Like, I wouldn't be here today if you weren't there that night. And, I mean, that's, you know, not strictly true because there's other people who do this job and all the rest. But it's, <laughs> it does make you feel quite nice that you feel like you were a valuable contributor that night. And um, I mean, in the ambulance service, in general, we don't get a lot of that either. No. Um, we'll get a letter from the ambulance service if we are at a cardiac arrest and that patient makes it yeah. to discharge from hospital to let us know that that was a successful resuscitation. But otherwise, we don't really hear unless unless a patient takes it upon themselves to send in a letter yeah. uh, and they happen to have like our name or they give the details of the day and the time, we don't really hear anything. Yeah. But it's just the best feeling when you do get one of those letters or you, know, uh, you suddenly get an, an email lands in your inbox from HR or someone to say, oh, we got this email through last week. It's from this patient you saw. Yeah. And then you get to to read it. It's it's just it's just so nice. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> so particularly at the moment, I mean, I say post-COVID, I, I kind of mean like in this post-COVID world, because we're still in it, we find ourselves under even more pressure in these sorts of roles than we normally would be. And what does mental health mean to you in the job that you do in both of them I guess actually both roles this has been a bit of a bit of something I've sort of grappled with recently because I I don't know if it's been happening in the ambulance service but certainly in the hospital uh, and on the helipad there's been quite a strong thrust towards wellness and what does wellness mean and what does mental health and mental wellness mean and how can that be facilitated and and we have a lot of you know champions who are leading on this stuff and and ensuring we've got access to, you know, yoga classes and and all sorts of things, which are really great. But I think for me, um, I don't that a lot of that stuff, uh, and this is very personal, but a lot of that stuff doesn't particularly resonate with me. I don't really want to go and sit in a room of people, some of whom I don't know, or some of whom I know, you know, not very well, and, and sort of share my feelings. I'm not that sort of person. And, uh, and, you know, I don't, don't want to like rush into work in my usual haphazard mangled start to the day, just to then stop and do a yoga class for an hour. You know, I, don't get me wrong. I like to do all of those things, but I like to do them in their own time. So I think mental health for me is about, and medics are terrible at this. So like this fabled work-life balance, mm. which as far as I'm concerned is practically the same as a leprechaun because I suspect it's out there somewhere, but I've never seen it. So it's obviously like a sort of a perennial issue that you're trying to work towards. But but um, but I think mental health for me is more about having some stuff uh, in your life that's away from the job, that's away from the hospital, yeah. that's away from the air ambulance, whatever it is. And 
I've got lots of stuff that that uh, allows me to compartmentalize my job and pack it away. And it's not even a, a conscious sort of ritual, but when I'm taking off my scrubs or my flight suit at the end of the shift, something in my head is packing away the day and the jobs and tucking them away and filing them. And um, and then I leave. And, and when I'm not at work anymore, I'm, I'm really not at work. I'm not in intellectually or emotionally invested anymore. And I go and I do stuff. And I have a small secret confession here. I'm absolutely mental about musicals. Oh, amazing. So I love the theater. <laughs> I go to the West End. I've seen Wicked five times. <laughs> I've seen Mamma Mia three times. Oh, amazing. Um, I go to the gym. I've got a really supportive family. Uh, I've got good mates. And so for me, mental health is just about not being at work, but also not just being at home and like, I don't know, surfing Twitter or Facebook or something. It's about being a little bit active, a little bit chill, uh, doing something entertaining, going out for a drink, seeing people you care about. And it's just yeah. doing stuff that is is not, is not work and that for me that's 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 mental health and that's good mental health i don't struggle with sleep i can sleep anywhere um i don't <laughs> but i know it's not the same for everyone and different jobs sit with people differently and some people struggle to let go of them we do have fortunately as i've you know said already like a very heavy culture of debrief and evaluation and reflection mm -hmm. And I do all of that, and I think that's massively important. But once you finish reflecting and debriefing and deciding how to do it better the next time, you then pack it up and you file it and you put it away. I think the people who do these jobs, jobs like ours, wouldn't be able to do them if they dwelt on it permanently. And I think that's, that would be hard. So I, I think you yeah. then need to leave and then go and do stuff you want to do. Go and see your family. Go and yeah. take in another, another sitting of Mamma Mia, for example. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because ultimately, what you're saying is like being a more rounded human being. And I think particularly from my understanding anyway, and I think it's changing in some medical schools now because there's a bit more of a push to have more diverse applicants entering medicine, which is a very yeah. good thing and I think good for the workforce. But previously, I think it was very much the conditioning for young doctors and trainees and people going to medical school was medicine should be your whole life. Yeah. From the get-go. That's what you should be thinking about at all times. You have to be wholly dedicated to it in order to succeed in it. Mm -hmm. And then actually now we're entering this, this era where we're saying, yeah, medicine is a big part of your life. It's your work side of your life, but actually it's really important to have another side to it. And it's, it's healthier and it's better for you it's better for the people around you probably as well yeah, definitely. <laughs> that you have these other outside interests definitely. and, uh, and that you kind of spend time on those as well yeah so if there was one thing that you could change in your job to make things easier what would it be let's imagine that there's like no budget constraints or anything like that yeah tricky i mean so i have to say like on on the clinical side of what i do whether it's in the hospital or whether it's uh in the air ambulance um i don't think i don't think i want for anything i mean we've got i work with great people we've got great kids i have a great job. Um, I would have to say, as I've sort of become more senior over the years, I've got some management or managerial responsibilities. And I think it's probably exactly that. It's it's budgetary constraints and, and trying to advance medicine uh, and advance the various services I work in are difficult and limiting because I have to spend a lot of time 
writing business cases and collecting evidence to justify wanting to change something or fix something or improve something. And I'm specifically talking about the NHS here. It's actually, it's quite a bit better in the air ambulance. We're funded and supported by a charity. And actually, um, there's great support for initiatives and things we want to we want to do in the air ambulance but i find in my role in in the nhs i find an enormous amount of time is consumed doing stuff that is not what i train to do is not stuff i want to do and it's not stuff where i'm the best person in the room to be doing it but i want to advance you know for example our trauma anesthesia service or various other elements and we suffer from what I call financial anemia. And so you have to constantly be justifying your position and your role and why you want something and why you want to do it better and where the money's going to come from. And um, so I'd have to say if, if we could take all of the management structures in the NHS and they could do some of that while the clinicians could actually focus on doing the clinical work, that would make my job mm-hmm. a huge amount easier. And I suspect the jobs of clinicians everywhere many others yeah yeah definitely (laughs) dan i've loved having you on the show thank you so much for coming on sharing your stories and having a chat we're here to provide an authentic voice for uniformed professionals and give our listeners a realistic insight into the jobs that we do and you've done just that thank you so much thanks kim thanks for having me it was really quite a lot of fun Well, that's it for today's episode. We'll be back next week speaking with another uniform professional about what it's like beneath the blue lights. Thank you for being here, lending your ears to our frontline workers. We're here to shift the conversation and we can't do that without you. Thank you to Dr. Daniel Nevin for being our guest today. Remember to follow us on at the paramedic pod on Twitter and at the paramedic podcast on Instagram. If you found this podcast to be useful and enjoyed listening, please do leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts as it really helps other people like yourself find the show. Thank you to Pure Creation Media for producing the podcast. I'll see you next week.